Hey, y'all, you're listening to the Lessons from Dead Guys podcast, a work of exile liturgy in conjunction with TheologyCorner.net. My name is Ryan Cagle, and it has been a long time. Um, but today, I'm super excited to be interviewing someone, um, uh, Dr. Thomas Ord. I'm sure you know his name if you've been a fan of the show, if you've been listening in at all. Uh, it's probably been about a year and a few months. I, uh, I interviewed him Um uh, about his book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, when he was in town when I was still living in Alabama. And uh, we had a good conversation uh, about about that book. But he's got a new book coming out uh, on January 7th um, titled God Can't. And uh, it's great. Uh, he sent me an advanced PDF copy, and I've been going through it. And I think it's a great book, and I can think of so many people that I know would benefit from it. And so... Uh, without further ado, I'm going to let Tom, Dr. Ord uh, introduce himself, and then we're going to get into his book. Well, it's always good to talk with you, Ryan. Uh, this is Tom Ord. I'm a theologian and philosopher and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. And this particular book that we're talking about today is coming out in the middle of January, is kind of an outgrowth of the book that uh, we talked about last time, The Uncontrolling Love of God. But this one is really a book meant to give people who don't have much theological background, people who don't, you know, have a seminary degree and don't know the theological lingo. Right. And like I was saying before the show, that just your book uh, is super accessible. I and I think you just you hit the nail on the head with that. Is that being your goal? And uh, I remember you telling me some months back, it might have been a year back even, that, you know, you were trying to ride, take these ideas of essential kenosis and take these ideas of the uncontrolling love of God and be able to translate them for people who you know, don't, don't have that backing, don't have that, you know, those theological structures to already be working with. And immediately, um, I actually cried a couple of times in the first few chapters of the oh, book, yeah. hearing some of the stories. I was very touched. Um, yeah, that's part of the and, reason. I mean, I wrote the book for many reasons, but one of the reasons is, is I got so many notes, Facebook messages or emails or some sort of social media notes, sometimes even handwritten, uh, from people who read The Uncontrolling Love of God and found it so helpful. And they would share their own personal stories, the things they've been through or their family members have been through, and the kind of, you know, you've, you've heard them, the theological cliches that many people give to try to explain why God didn't stop that thing in the first place. And so many people wrote and said, wow, your book really helped me out. I don't have to think that God was somehow causing or allowing the crap that I've endured. Right. Right. And that that's absolutely liberating. Um, I know for, for me, when I began to uh, wrestle uh, with, uh, you know, the ideas of theodicy and the problem of evil and, and suffering in the world. Um, and I, I really those are some things that I had wrestled with and then kind of buried and just, you know, put on the back burner. I think until really last year uh, when me and you had talked and I think in our conversation, I, I brought that up that, you know, this was an area uh, in my growth and in my deconstruction and my uh, exploration theologically that I've kind of tried to avoid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and how your your book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, was uh, kind of helped me articulate some of those things that I kind of believed or come to know uh, and, um, you know, had those thoughts, but I didn't really have the theological language for them. And to be honest with you, I, you know, I think I said this at that time, I wasn't quite ready to really talk about those things or, or deal with those things. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and I, so I think, 
Go uh, ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, was, I, I think you're probably like a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people who have certain reasons to believe in God, either, you know, it helps them make sense of the world or they've had a religious experience of some sort, or it's just kind of been the way they've been brought up. Uh, but when this particular question comes along, why doesn't a God who loves everyone all the time, who is so powerful, why doesn't this God stop the genuine evil of the world? A lot of people start to think about that question and then kind of just appeal to mystery, maybe put it on the back burner. I mean, some people, you know, give up believing in God altogether. But I think a lot of people just kind of put it on the back burner and uh, don't spend a lot of time with it because it's a difficult, difficult question, not only theoretically, but emotionally and uh, existentially. Right. Yeah, it it definitely is. I think, um, and it's one, you know, I think it, it typically does push people to extremes. They either go to the, well, God has ordained this, you know, God has, you know, this is a part of God's will, this suffering, this pain, this death is a part of God's will. Uh, or they, you know, uh, they try to appeal to the mystery of we don't understand how it works or the other side of they just say, you know, any God that would allow this to happen is not a God worth worshiping, uh, which I agree, uh, but it makes them become non-theist. It makes them, you know, discount the the whole idea of God or divinity or um, that there's a creator who loves them. Uh, yeah, and- I agree. I, and there's another category of people. I think I, I find a lot of people in this other category. I totally agree with what you just said. But this category is people who continue to believe in God, but feel kind of, um, oh, what's the right word? Um, disempowered, feeble, feel uh, feel like they can't really engage in trying to make sense of the world and talk about God because they know that their theological language has got to account for all the things that's wrong in the world as well. And so they're very tempted to sort of put all their God language on the sidelines and, uh, you know, not make any claims about what God might be up to in the world because they haven't really thought through all the implications. And, And sometimes that means they just focus their whole attention on something that I think is good, you know, maybe a social justice issue, helping the poor, giving their life, you know, to help children, the elderly, whatever, uh, things I'm totally on board with, but they set aside the theological framework. And then it it begins to, you begin to wonder, well, what makes what I'm doing any different than, you know, the atheist social worker down the street? I say, I believe in God, but I don't really have a theological framework to work out of and language to use, uh, you know, does it really matter if, if, you know, does belief in God matter at all? And I want to say, look, atheists can be loving too. I've got no problem with that. But we need to think carefully about the kind of views of God we have, and we want them to match our deep intuitions about love, social justice, et cetera, compassion in the world. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And I think um, for me, when I kind of began to encounter this question, um, people like uh, Moltmann, uh, you know, his understanding of, you know, God, the suffering God with us was very helpful, but I don't, I don't think it necessarily went far enough for me. Right. Um, you know, so when, you know, people, I would have friends who say, you know, well, how can there be a loving God? You know, they would point at, you know, some 
you know, a school being shot up. And I'm like, well, God's there. God's in that. God, God is wounded. God is, you know, there in the midst of that dying, but that's still not, um, didn't, it, it kind of helped, I think, um, get me out of that place of thinking that God just allows all this to happen, uh, to see that there's a, there's a loving God that, that God suffers with us and goes through these things with us, but it still wasn't quite far enough. Yeah. yeah. And I had that language I think, until I encountered your first book. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I try to do in this book. There are certain answers people give to the problem of evil. One of them is that God suffers with us. Another is that, you know, look, these bad things can build our character. They can make us stronger. You know, they can teach us lessons, whatever. A lot of these answers have a grain of truth in them but in and of themselves don't fully articulate a good answer to the problem of evil. And so in this new book, God Can't, I try to um, pick out those nuggets of truth in some of these other theories while saying we've got to go further. We've got to ask the big questions about God's power, because as important as it is to say that, you know, we can learn from the pain and suffering in our lives or that God is with us in the midst of it, we also have to give an account for why God didn't stop these horrific evils in the first place. Right. And something I thought was really cool, um, and I, I'm curious to know how, because um, I, I don't think these are, um, I don't think this, you proposing that this book or that this, this understanding is a solution to the problem of evil. It's, I think you've, you've had conversations about this already. How has that been received that kind of, you know, in the introduction of this book, you, you talk about that this is a solution to this um, problem uh, of evil. This is a solution to this. Um, and, you know, cause most people still, even people that are, you know, more radically theologically inclined to think about it um, in, in non traditional terms still, I don't think would, would be bold enough to say that. Right. So how's that been? You know, it's, it's usually, it's not received well initially by people who are scholars because this has been a question that has confused and flummoxed scholars for, you know, centuries. And to have someone like me come along and say, Hey, I've solved it. You know, that that strikes people as super cocky and arrogant. Oh yeah. Who are you? Are you smarter than the rest of us? Kind of a thing. Um, And so they don't even want to go down that path. Sometimes, Sometimes they will even say that anyone who attempts or who says they've solved the problem of evil are just uh, exercising more evil. You know, they've they've uh, they've misunderstood the problem or they're adding to the problem. And I think I understand why people say those kinds of things, because the views of God they've been handed and even some of them done a lot of study on is so wrapped around a particular view of God's power that they can't, at least initially, imagine an alternative. But one of the very positive things has been that my books, my last book, I'm hoping this new book as well, has presented a vision of God's power that has really made sense, not just the average sort of person in the pews or the person on the street, but to scholars as well. And um, so there are more and more scholars, I think, who are open to the possibility that uh, a rethinking of this view of God's power could actually be the solution that we've been wanting. 
Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm just some hillbilly redneck from, you know, the, the backwoods of Alabama. So I, I don't have, uh, uh, those, uh, those degrees or anything to disagree with you and push back on you. But for me, when I read it, and for me, in many ways, the litmus test for if something, if I feel like something is, is close, um, or, or close to truth or is truth is this, if it's good news. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it has to be good news. So whatever, whatever solution or whatever understanding we come to about the odyssey or the problem of evil, it, it has to be good news at the, to some, some grain. Uh, and, but this whole under, your whole understanding of the controlling, uncontrolling love of God and essential kenosis. And, um, it's really good news. Yeah, like, I, I, it, is, I, it is really good news. I totally agree, obviously. And I think one of the things that kept people from thinking this, you know, alternative view of God's power could be good news is they thought they had to a choice between two options. Either God was controlling everything or could control everything, or God wasn't doing anything. God was sitting on the sidelines. God had abandoned us. God was, you know, the deistic God. And to say, no, the good news is not just that God uh, is with us and loves us, but God is also powerful and working in the world. It's just not in any kind of controlling kind of way. Uh, that then gives hope that there's a possibility of, uh, of, uh, of better days, uh, reconciliation, salvation, ultimate victory of good over evil, etc. Because, you know, we don't have an inactive God nor a controlling God. We've got an always influencing almighty God, but who cannot control. Right. And, you know, for me, um, the understanding, you know, God, you know, God being almighty, controlling, having this, um, as a teenager, I was, you know, just convinced, you know, and this isn't so much about the problem of evil, but just the nature of God, um, is that, you know, God had this absolute set in stone plan, uh, and I could diverge from it. So, you know, I, I wasn't very Calvinistic in the idea that there was no, you know, there's no, you know, um, changing things, yeah. but that God had an absolute controlled plan and I could participate in it or I could work against it. I could, you know, uh, make the right decisions and be in God's will, or I can make the wrong decisions and fall out of God's will and possibly perpet, you know, mess my life up for the next 40 years, you know, for making one wrong decision. Um, and those kind of things really affected me for a long time. And so when I, when I started coming to a place of understanding God, um, in an uncontrolling way, it, it allowed me to be able to see, uh, God outside of those constructs, you know, uh, it was very freeing for me, I think, to see that. And I think that if we can get to a place where we can at least get people to see that, that God yes. is not coercive, you know, so much of the, I don't know, so, so much theology I've encountered in my life has been God is being coercive. God God is uh, that, or, you know, God has the ability at least to be coercive. Yes, and that's one of the things I really address in this book, that you're right that a lot of people have said, look, God is not controlling anything, everything, you know, we've got free will or whatever. And so they've, they set aside the all controlling God, the God of, you know, John Calvin, the theological determinism, and they've stuck in the free will, which of course I'm very happy for, but they've continued to think God really could control if God wanted to do so. And so, uh, it, 
in the last chapter of this book, I really address this question directly because what it ends up doing is it ends up saying that what our lives do really don't ultimately matter or what we do really doesn't ultimately matter. It says that God is kind of like the uh, preschool teacher who uh, says to the kids, uh, look, we have to put away the toys before we go home. Otherwise, you have to stay here. Well, if in fact the preschoolers don't put away those toys, the teacher is going to put them away for them. You know, what what the kids do doesn't really matter. They're going to go home. And so that's just sort of a vague threat. And what many people have said about God is that, you know, God invites us to participate in what's going on in the world, but they've continued to think that God really could get the job done unilaterally all alone if God wanted to. And that means if that's really true, that what we do really doesn't ultimately matter. The God I'm presenting in this book is a God who is always active, always loving, all the time, but simply can't get the kinds of things done God wants to get done in terms of love unless we cooperate, which means our lives really do matter. And God's plan for the world requires our cooperation. And I think that's a big deal. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. You know, um, I think a lot of it, you know, the people that hold on to the idea that God's not controlling, but he could be, it has to do with them feeling like if they dare say that God can't do something, they would be, um, being irreverent, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. um, you know, we, t- we take that term almighty, you know, and we, we run with it, you know, um, and, you know, I think to some extent, and I think maybe that's something, um, is really what you're doing is that you're really questioning some of these maybe Greek philosophical constructs that we've used to try to, especially the early church, try to use to understand God Definitely. and understand who God is and how he, how he operates and how God operates in the world. And so, um, you know, we, we elevate those things as if they were absolute truth, even though more or less they should be seen as a vehicle. They got us, got the, the church and uh, humanity through a certain time of being able to understand God that way, even um it doesn't mean that it's in, inerrant or invaluable. Exactly, yeah. I was actually had a had a meal the other day with a pastor who uh, knows that this book, God Can't, is coming out. And he was kind of taking me aside to caution me. You know, this he's basically, this is a controversial title. Do you know what you're really getting into? And uh, I appreciated his, his motives. Uh, but I was thinking on the drive home after the conversation that, yeah, I recognize that the title God can't is going to jar people. But as I say in the book, the Bible, the biblical authors say God can't do some things. And people right. who, you know, want to praise, uh, prize the Bible, which I'm in that camp, I, I want to prize the Bible, um, are often not aware that the Bible itself supports the title of my book, God Can't. Now, I take that particular right. language in a, in a way that's not maybe explicit in the Bible, but um, the phrase God Can't alarms a lot of people because they have this, this view of God largely shaped by Neoplatonic metaphysics and uh, ways of, uh, or the particular views of monarchs and presidents and political structures. And um, they don't have what I think is a more biblical way of looking at God as one who is uh, like a good parent, who's not domineering or manipulative, but influential, nurturing, loving all the time. Right. Do you feel like that your framing of, of understanding the nature of God reflects more um, 
in some ways, I obviously I, I know that I could think of probably 20 examples that someone could pull from scripture, but in, in some ways reflects more of the heart of the Hebrew Bible understanding of God than necessarily uh, being confined to the, the strict laws of, you know, uh, Greek, you know, uh, metaphysics. Definitely. I mean, I think my book and these ideas are strongly supported by the Bible, strongly supported. In fact, I will go so far as to say the idea that God controls creation in the sense of being the only actor is not an idea found in the entire Bible. There's no passage, no story that explicitly says God alone did something and creatures and creation or creation had no contribution to make. What many people have done is they've read the Bible and they have seen a phrase where it says, you know, God does X or God does Y. And they have just with this view of God's power in the back of their mind, assumed that when God did that, God must have done it single-handedly, unilaterally. God alone made things, you know, uh, consequences come about. The Bible doesn't actually say that, but they have imposed that view given their presuppositions. Uh, but there's no explicit uh, passage in the entire Bible, and I'm including, you know, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I'm including the resurrection of Jesus. I'm including the creation of the world. There's nothing in the entire Bible that explicitly says God has the kind of controlling power that that allows for no creaturely contribution. Um, so, I think the Bible supports right. this view well. I'm not saying, you know, the Bible, it, it's explicit there and no one else has seen it for 2,000 years. And here I am the first one to actually, you know, read it. I'm not making that claim. Uh, I'm saying it's a right. strongly yeah. consonant with Scripture. Well, this, this is a good segue into a question I had for you, you know, being lessons from dead guys. Um, obviously, you didn't pull uh, the all of the framework for this and then uh, not saying that you didn't do the labor to come to these conclusions, but who are the people in your life or in the, in, in the times before you, maybe, maybe, maybe there are people alive, but uh, specifically people who have, you know, passed on from this life um, that have helped push you towards these conclusions. Yeah. I think probably the first person to come to mind is John Wesley. Now, uh, Wesley had uh, theo a theology that emphasized God's love, and he even has a few claims here and there about God not being able to do things. Most uh, Wesley's followers, people in the Methodist tradition or my own tradition, the Church of Nazarene or other Wesleyan uh, groups, don't know that John Wesley made these claims about things that God can't do, but he actually did make them. Um, but probably what they do know is that Wesley had a strong emphasis upon divine love, and that's definitely has influenced me. I've also been influenced by open theology, which is a far more recent phenomenon, and process theology, um, which is also a 20th century, really the, the, the main contours of it is a 20th century phenomenon. Now, when I say influenced right. by those, I don't want to give the idea that I'm, that, you know, every Wesleyan theologian would agree with me, every process theologian, every openness, whatever. I've got my own brand, my own, you know, uh, look at things, but I want to acknowledge that those have been powerful influences on my quest to try to make sense of the world and present ideas that I think uh, not only solve the problem of evil, but help in other ways as well. 
Right. Yeah. You know, I'm, even though I was in a Methodist church for a few years, I, I really haven't spent as much time with John Wesley as I probably should have. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I have some friends that are very, you know, big Wesley nerds. Uh, um, but what I, what I know of him, I, I, I definitely like. And, and of course, I think, uh, you know, I probably have some kind of proclivities towards this understanding, uh, process thought of, of some kind and, um, maybe not so much, um, that I've, you know, directly read a lot of Whitehead or anyone sure. like that so much. But um, um, I think we talked a lot uh, about it last time, probably not on the show, uh, but outside of the show about uh, Teilhard de Chardin's mm, right. yeah. um, influence on my life and his understanding. Um, and one of the things that he's, you know, kind of he puts forth that really impacts me is that, you know, God has this idea that where creation's going and God is relentless in his pursuit mm-hmm. to see creation become fully what it, uh, what, you know, uh, have a fully, um, become fully into the divine life, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he calls it the Omega point is, you know, it's very eschatological. Um, but one thing he, you know, he just talks about how all of creation is steeped in the the love of God. And that really, really changed how I thought about things. And also, um, something that he puts forth that really radically changed me when I first heard it was, you know, uh, someone asked him, you know, like, you know, what, what happens if, you know, we like obliterate ourselves, you know, with, um, you know, war and, you know, the technologies we have to literally just wipe so much of humanity off the face of the earth and just no time, you know, what happens then? And he said, then the spirit continues yep. with whatever's yep. left, you know, um, and maybe, and that's something that I, I've always struggled with is that people or when people talk about how we have no part to play, but yet we had a part to play. Like, so those same people that say like, we can't, you know, that God's doing everything or whatever. Um, they fully believe, you know, that we, you know, we, and I I wouldn't say all of them, some probably extreme, but you know, we had a part to play when it comes to the fall, screwing the world (laughs) up. So why wouldn't we have a part to play in seeing the world healed? You know, if we had this massive part to play, uh, this role to play when it came to, you know, essentially destroying the whole cosmos, you know, turning off kill is, you know, some of the, how people view the, the fall, um, you know, then why wouldn't we have a part to play? Um, why wouldn't there be a cooperative effort between us and God to see creation, uh, become fully realized in the divine yep, life? Totally. That's a great, great analogy or a great, uh, illustration. I totally agree. You know, I, I think one thing in your book that's really good, like I said, it's, it's super accessible. Um, and I, I love, I love that you've chosen that title to, to back up some. I don't, I don't want to bounce around so much, but you know, you talk about it being jarring. I, but I think it needs to be jarring because I think there's going to be people, um, who are so wounded, who have been through yep. hell and back, who've experienced atrocities, um, beyond imagine, you know, beyond what I can imagine that are going to hear about your book. They're going to be referred to your book. And that title is going to be alone before they even get into the meat of the book. They're going to be able to start breathing a yeah, little easier. I think what the beauty of this um, title is, is that it's not only uh, tells you what I really think about what God's power is like, but it also is a nice marketing title. <laughs> you know, right. It's it is. Call, yeah. Draw people in. Now, what it might not do, it might, there are going to be some Christian leaders, some pastors who are going to say, oh, I don't know if I want to stand up from the pulpit and recommend a book that says God can't, or I don't know if I want my Christian education director to, you know, have the groups, the small groups in my church or the Sunday school classes do a study on this book because it's, you know, God can't. I suspect 
suspect, however, it's the kind of book they will give people who are asking these questions, who've been through horrific times or tragedies. Um, so we'll see how it's, it works out. But that's my hunch. Right. If it makes you feel any better, I've already pitched it to yeah, our adult education good, good, good. coordinator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I've already pitched a, like a, a three week series on it uh, for our adult education program awesome. here uh, for well, the coming you know, year. I haven't heard back from them. As you but, know, uh, looking at I think the book, it, I you know added seven questions at the end of the chapter. So I really designed the book to be a discussion tool. Right. You know, and that's something I absolutely loved about it. I, um, I, I spent a lot of time with the questions just because, um, you know, I, they're there. Right. And I think so often, uh, you know, works of theology, do they just make a bunch of statements and, uh, they make, you know, this is what, you know, I think or whatever. Um, and then, but this, this is the kind of topic that really needs a lot of critical reflection. Yes. Um, and so I thought it, you know, that's another thing I, I just thinking about the accessibility of the book, um, and that it, you know, how I think it could help people because, you know, some people are going to read this stuff and they're not going to have any clue how exactly. to process it. <laughs> But those questions in the back are going to be super important for those people, I think. Uh, so I think that not only was that a good call, but that's just a, a great way. Um, I think that's going to a great thing that's going to help people not only process a thing, uh, this, but also lead to healing yeah, itself. I hope so. You know? I really um, do. Some people are good about internal processing. It, those are often people who can read books and, you know, really think things through, but other people are more external processors. They got to talk it through. And hopefully those discussion questions will help the latter kind of person. Right. And so, you know, we, we've talked about how so far that, you know, there's a biblical case for it. You know, we know that in the scriptures, Paul says, you know, God can't deny himself. And, uh, you know, the scriptures talk about God not being able to lie. We've, we've talked about that. Um, and, you know, but one thing I do want to focus on, um, and I think uh, that it's uh, important is specifically in chapter three, uh, you know, you talk about how God works mm -hmm. to heal. Um, and I, would you, would you speak to that yeah. for a minute as far as how you've approached that in that book? Because, you know, some people like, okay, God can't control evil, you know, they're here or whatever. And then God feels our pain. Uh, but how is God working to heal, uh, in a world that seems so broken? That's one of my favorite uh, chapters in the book in part, because when I went to write it, I kind of had a general idea of what I wanted to say, but sometimes, in fact, often in the writing process, I come to new insights and new ideas. And, and I did in this particular chapter. What I wanted to do is to acknowledge that people are healed. And I wanted to uh, insist that healing that occurs has God as its source. God is working to heal, I say, everyone, all the time, everywhere. God's a nonstop uh, a healing God, working to bring healing in the world. And that oftentimes comes through traditional means, you know, physicians, counselors, pastoral care, social workers, whatever. And if we understand God's healing as uh, pertaining to those more traditional ways, then that can expand our understanding of God as a healing God. But what people get hung up on, and rightly so, is that oftentimes folks are not healed, either by 
traditional means or through, you know, prayer, anointing with oil at the altar or however that happens. And so we want to have an explanation. If God is always working to heal everyone all the time, then why aren't some people healed? And the standard answers to that question, I frankly find dissatisfying. You know, one answer is, you know, God's got a better plan for you. Another one is God is punishing you from what you've done. Another is that these are the demons and the devil who are, you know, messing with you. And the people who say that, almost all of them think that God could control the demons and devil, but for some reason doesn't. These are these are answers right. that, that when you start to think about them carefully, don't make a lot of sense. So what I do in this chapter is I say, we need to take this view of God's power, that God can't single-handedly prevent evil, and apply it to healing and say that God can't single-handedly heal. God requires cooperation or the conditions of creation to be correct. That then will not, that then will make it possible for people who aren't healed to say, look, I don't blame God for not healing because God was doing the best God can do given the circumstances. And I'm not going to blame myself, assuming that I'm cooperating with God. There's other factors, forces in my body or outside my body at the cellular level, at the muscle, organs, whatever, that aren't cooperating or that aren't aligned correctly for the kind of healing God wants to do at least in this life. One of the things I also talk about in this chapter is that uh, God is not only working to heal us now, but that work continues after we die in the afterlife. I, I believe in an after uh, afterlife, after death experience. Anyhow, so right. that was a fun chapter to work through uh, because of the big questions and, well, also because of my own history with this of trying to to think about what it means for God to be a healing God and my failed attempts to to, to heal people <laughs> in my ministry. Uh, so, yeah, it was fun. Right. Yeah. You talk in the book about, you know, um, starting a healing yeah, ministry. Right, was that right? Yeah, Am I recalling yeah. that correctly? So you started a healing ministry uh, and, you know, being the, you know, the good Pentecostal that I am, you know, that's that's something that's been um, all across, you know, yeah. my faith journey is this understanding that God heals. And uh, but then sometimes God exactly. doesn't, <laughs> you know, that's uh, so much of my youth. I, I mean, I, I've seen things that I can't give logical explanations for yeah. other than yep. God. You know, I've seen things happen in my life. I've seen things happen, um, I guess, more miraculous, but I've seen things like happen in people's lives, in, in their health. And um, I've seen, you know, doctors give diagnoses and, you know, diagnose and then say, you know, you got six months to live and that person lived, you know, right. way longer than that. And then the cancer be gone, you know, whatever, you know, I've seen those kind of things happen. Um, so I believe those things, you know, for so long, uh, especially in the Pentecostal church, because it's just a big point mm -hmm. of interest there and uh, in the Pentecostal charismatic tradition. Um, but then when my son was born, uh, and I think we might've talked about yeah. this last time, that was, that was a, a big pivot for me. Because my son was born with a disorder where the bottom of his stomach uh, was growing shut, and so he couldn't digest food properly. And I remember praying and fasting, and for two months, it yeah. was just – it was awful. I prayed, and I fasted. I laid hands on him. I anointed him with oil. You know, all these people prayed, and he never got healed uh, in in the miraculous sense, I guess. You know, he, he had surgery. He came yeah. out of a fine. <laughs> you would never know that for the two months of his life, he – first two months of his life, he barely was able to digest any food. Um, you never know that now. Uh, but I remember 
that being a point of me having to step back and reconsider the things yeah. I thought about God. Um, and it pushed me um, not so much to a place to question myself, um, but it definitely pushed my wife to a place to feel like, well, yeah. I don't have enough yeah. faith that the problems with me. Um, whereas I kind of was like, well, the problems <laughs> with God. <laughs> and so we, we kind of, we kind of diverged <laughs> a little bit there on, you know, how we responded to that situation. And, you know, I came to the conclusion, well, the problems with God. Um, and so that means probably, you know, the pro- the real problem is with, is with how well, I understand well. God, you know? And so, but with my wife is the total opposite, you know, she was, um, you know, was she she had a little bit of a roller coaster of experience. You know, I pulled her from the backwoods Baptist Church into the, <laughs> the fiery uh, life of Pentecostal yeah. House Church. You know, and so you know she's already had plenty of baggage to work through yep. from <laughs> before that. But um, your you know, so I, point. I'm ahead. sorry. A general point of what your great story illustrates is that it's people who have had difficult times, either personally or in their family or their friends, those are the kind of people who are going to see this book and be drawn to it. The person who thinks they've got God pretty figured out, or at least they don't really have any questions because everything seems to work out for them, they're probably not going to like my book. (laughs) Let's just be honest. (laughs) But the person, like people like you and me and, you know, really most people in life who've had some difficult times and ask hard questions, this is the kind of book that they're going to gravitate toward. Right. I, I'm glad you wrote it because I, I literally, I, I know a dozen people right now. Awesome. I want to get it in their hands, you know. Uh, and the whole time I was reading it, I would, I would, when I'd come home from work or whatever, I'd be like, hey, and I'd talk to my wife because she, she's still, she's still sure. processing through yeah. a lot of those things. Uh, we're, I mean, we're six years out and she still is yeah. processing through those things. And, um, she, she might be for a long time. I mean, I'm still processing through the things that, you know, uh, happened yeah. to me, I think then totally too natural. as well. But, uh, yeah. And so I was like, man, I got to read this to her, you know? Um, and it, something that is just kind of, it blows my mind. Um, you know, reading your stuff, it, it, reading this book and reading Uncontrolling Love of God, it, it almost after the fact felt, so, it feels so common sense. <laughs> like it should oh, be. Does that make sense? Did you feel that way when you kind of you're after you laboriously came to this place and you worked through all these things and you wrestled through these experiences and people's stories and your stories and your encounters with God and failures? Did you look back and think, "Wow, you know what? This really just is simply liberating in in kind of this just very you know, simple way." I don't think way. I've looked back because I was in the midst of formulating these ideas, and so I know firsthand the work it took to think through them, but. What you say here in terms of making sense, I get that just about every talk I give. You know, I, I do a lot of touring and lecturing at uh, universities and churches, and and I, I'll bet I'm, I'm tempted to say every time, but if not every time, almost every time, someone will come up to me after I've given a lecture and talked, and they've said, you know, what you've been saying, I've kind of always thought that it just makes so much sense. It just just fits the way my life works and the world seems to work. Uh, I just haven't had the kind of I, I've never heard anybody articulate it the way you did, but it just kind of fits the way I've been thinking. So uh, I think your reaction is pretty common. Right? Yeah. It, and that's I, I wasn't trying to downplay no, no, the I work know. that goes into it because what. I, 
how I understand it, you know, is that we have these people like you who have done the labor, who, who have wrestled with these things uh, day in and day out. And then after that, because you've come to this place and you, you've got this understanding, you'll be able you're able to then articulate it to people who don't yep. have that language, who don't have those structures. And then it's you know, I don't know. I, I think the spirit is very freeing and I think the spirit works in our lives. Sometimes, you know, some people, it takes them years to get things through their head. And then sometimes it's just like the spirit yep, opens I their totally heart up agree. to something. Um, and I, I, I definitely I feel like this speaks to a lot of your work, speaks to a lot of people's deep mm-hmm. inner experience with probably what they really would like to think about God or what they, you know, think about how the world works. Um, but they've, they've had no one to usher yep. them to that place. You know, they've had no one give them that words uh, to validate them, to validate um, how they feel or, or, or just even, even not necessarily even in this sense, but, you know, just so many people walk around, they say, you know, they, they talk about in church every week that God's love, but, you know, there's a big, uh, big 37 page of fine prints that starts with, but, you know, uh, God's love, but, you know, and they carry that around with them. Uh, and then things like, you know, I think essential kenosis and uncontrolling love um, really reframes that in a way that's like, no, you can just throw all those 37 pages yeah. of bull crap away, you know, yep. God's love period. Um, and that means the way we think about God and the way we think about how God interacts with the world and the way we think about suffering yep. has I to totally change. Agree. That's well put. So in this book, um, so, you know, you talk about, you know, God can't prevent evil uh, and I'm, I'm listening to chapter titles, uh, you know, God fills our pain, uh, which I know for me was super healing. You know, God, God is working to heal consistently in the world, which we just talked about. Um, and then in chapter four, you talk about God squeezes good from the bad. You know, um, Paul talks about how everything God works, everything for the good of those that love God. Um you know, and that verse gets taken to mean God just ordains all this stuff for those that love God or those, you know, uh, um, but, you know, I think um, that I, I really think how you're in the book and how in your work, you're, you really focus on um, love is that primary place, um, that primary understanding of God, that if God is truly loved, then he is, then God is working um, to squeeze whatever good exactly. he can out of this. You know, bad. I don't know about um, you, but I, I've, you know, been in churches most of my life and either in a small group setting or in my home church, when I was a kid, we used to have testimonial time in which people stood up and, you know, gave a testimony, gave witness. And many in those kinds of settings, someone would stand or sit in the small group and talk about how they've gone through a really tough tragic situation. Maybe someone was sick or someone died or something bad happened. And they would look back and see some good things that have come out of it, some really good things and things that probably wouldn't have occurred had the, you know, the person not died or not been sick or the tragedy had not occurred. And they see that good and they know that God, or they believe that God is the source of good. And so they say, well, obviously if God's the source of good and God wanted this good thing to come out of it, God must've then wanted the bad, the tragedy, the evil, the suffering, the pain, the rotten stuff of the past in order, to bring about the good that I now see in hindsight. 
And what I say in this chapter is, okay, right. they, there is something valuable in what they say there. There is an insight, and that is that good sometimes does come uh, in the wake of the bad, after the bad. But we don't have to believe that God wanted the bad in the first place. We can believe that God continues to work with whatever situation comes along, good, bad, or indifferent. And God works to, as the word I use, is squeeze something good from the evil and bad God didn't cause or allow when it happened in the past. And I think this is important because it it can match the testimonies we hear without buying into some of the theological moves that the testimony people give uh, and affirm their the value of uh, the good that came from bad. Right. You know, I think even for me, so like even in like a non Calvinistic approach or whatever, but like, I love the church fathers and I love, um, especially I'm, I'm a big fan of like Eastern aesthetics, um, you know, and they have these massive, crazy, just super in-depth, um, kind of understandings of the love of God. But it's always, you know, when it comes to suffering, well, you probably <laughs> deserved it or God, did because you, you got something in you yeah. that needs to be out, you know? Um, and, you know, even so, like one of my favorite, favorite theologians of all time is Isaac really? of Nineveh. Um, and, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, he talks about God not being retributive and all these things. But still in the same tone, in the same breath, he still is like, you know, but this bad thing happens because God's trying to get, you know, he's trying to purge you. God's trying to get this out of you. Thank you for holy. Uh, so yeah. like so close, right? <laughs> Isaac, I mean, he, he's br- brilliant. Um, his works and thoughts have s- influenced my life yeah, in such cool. great ways. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, you know, he, the, the way he understands the love of like just the, the true love of God is, is beautiful. Uh, but then when it comes to suffering, he's like, well, you know, you, God's not doing <laughs> it to be mean. God's just, God's allowing these things to happen because yeah, you're not no. where you need to be. Uh, which is to me is not a no, satisfactory not. And, answer and see, by that's any means. Another but. example of how sometimes that's probably true. Sometimes what we do that's negative, sinful, disobedient, maybe is the source of the pain and suffering ha- we have. But then what people do is then make the jump to think that all the pain and suffering, all the difficulties we have must be somehow linked to my disobedience or being punished by God. And uh, that's one of the reasons I bring up the story of Job in this book, because I think it's a re- great example biblical example of someone who didn't screw up, who didn't sin, who was righteous his whole life and yet suffered deeply. Uh, so that story, I think, uh, right. undermines the whole view that you always reap what you sow. Sometimes you sow things that uh, you didn't reap. Uh, someone else reaped them or, you know, chance circumstances or whatever. Right. You know, and I think we see even see them on the flip side because I see people who sow nothing but discord in the world. So nothing but injustice. And sometimes I'm like, you know, uh, it's hard. I'm like, God, yeah. when are they going to yep. reap what they're sowing? You know, uh, then I'm gut checked and God's like, why are you worried about what they're reaping? You know, or, you know, that, you know, reminding myself like, hey, you know, it's um, I shouldn't want <laughs> I shouldn't want yeah, people yeah. to get what they deserve. <laughs> uh, you know, I, don't, I don't think that because, um, you know, Lord knows there's probably things I've done in this life that deserve a lot yeah, more hell than yeah. I've been through. Um, well, I think also uh, I, but, I, when I think of people who I think do things that 
cause a lot of pain, and yet their own lives don't seem to be as painful as I think it ought to be, given how much pain they've inflicted. Uh, it helps me to distinguish between internal and external suffering. It may be the case that, uh, you know, some powerful political leader is causing all kinds of harm to lots of people. And from the outside, it looks like that that leader still has, you know, lots of positive things going on, still lives in the comfort of a nice uh, housing situation, still has friends of people of influence or whatever. But I, I have to believe that internally, that things aren't so great, that there's the wages of sin internally is immediate, even if it's not externally apparent. Right. You know, um, stepping back just a hair, you know, talk, thinking about, you know, the consequences of how we live, you know, sometimes like, I just, I don't think it's helpful to think, and obviously you don't, that God is just out there waiting. So when you mess up, he's like, okay, Thomas, (laughs) you messed up. So here's this little bit of suffering coming your way, you know? Um, But that doesn't mean like, you know, if I, if I walk up to you and I slap you in the face and you slap me back, I can't say God (laughs) made you slap me back, you know? Right. Oh, this is God's punishment. But, you know, that that's a lot of times I think that's really the language in the scriptures is that, you know, that, oh, that's God's wrath. Well, it's not that God's up there pouring out wrath on people. It's that, you know, the consequence for exactly. the things we do that's in this life. Call, that's what uh, I call the natural that, negative consequences that come from sin. Yeah, yeah. that's just right. – I, I think a yeah. similar view or maybe this is – maybe the same view that you've just articulated is the view that God decides whether or not to send bad consequences for our sin. So it's kind of like, you know, we say, oh, God, I, I knew I, I did something bad. I cheated here or I, you know, um, I don't know, hurt someone willfully. Uh, please, please don't hurt me. Give me some grace here. It's like my students sometimes who have a late paper. They say, will you give me some grace here? As if, you know, as if I as a teacher can make these kinds of choices and they think, well, God must be able to decide whether or not to let the hammer fall or keep the hammer from falling. I think it's much better to think that they're just natural negative consequences and God doesn't sit around deciding whether or not to punish or not punish. God's not in that kind of business. God's in the love business. And so it's not a a decision on God's part whether or not we reap what we sow. Right. You know, I think about uh, sometimes uh, when I in in a broader picture. So like Jesus, you know, he uh, on the you know, he's coming into Jerusalem on the back of a a colt and he says, you know, he's weeping for Jerusalem. He says, if you had only known the things Mm -hmm. that would have made for peace. You know, and, you know, we, we have these prescriptions of judgment from Jesus in the Gospels, but I, I don't think it's like God's going to do this, but it's, hey, exactly. this is what's going to happen if you keep doing these things. Like, you know, if you keep sticking your hand in the fire, don't yeah, be exactly. mad that you're burned about that's it. That's what I think and most of the prophets know, are doing in the Old Testament as well. They're looking at the ways of the people and saying, look, if you don't change, there's going to be some natural negative consequences to come here. Now, I admit that sometimes the prophets put those consequences in the hands of God. Uh, But I think a better way to look at it is just saying, look, uh, if you sin, sin produces evil and evil is unpleasant. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to unfold typically in unpleasant ways, you know? Um, 
And so that's, I, I think those things, um, I, I really think that the kind of a, a more orthodox view of understanding um, that way, I, I say, you know, big O orthodox, not um, maybe actual orthodox, but orthodoxy, but you know, the, the in many ways, like in the Eastern view of God's wrath, um, you know, uh, some, you know, in some orthodox thought, you know, the, the, you know, the lake of fire is the same place is in the same place as, you know, the, the yeah. city of God in revelations. It's, you know, in the book of revelation, it's that, you know, it, when some people are going to, you know, experience it as, as hell and other people are going to experience it as, as heaven and endless joy. And, you know, it's kind of like, um, the wrath of God is this, uh, or the punishment of sin, all these things, you know, just, it's, I think it's a better way to understand them as, you know, just the consequences it's, it's yep. pushing against the grain. You know, if you, Stick yep. your hand to the fire; it's going to burn. So don't blame you know don't blame exactly. that on God. You know you have to say God but, did it. Yep, um, and that's one of the reasons why in the very last chapter I address the questions of heaven and hell and the afterlife. And I think the proposal I placed on the table uh, is novel, original. It might be similar to the one that C.S. Lewis has proposed, but it's not exactly. I call it the relentless love view. And it basically says that God doesn't give up loving us in the next life. God continues to call us and invite us to a relationship with love. But because God can't control, we can freely choose to say no to God. We can do it in this life and in the next life. So I don't have a kind of uh, universalism that's guaranteed because God is going to you know, force everyone into heaven. On the other hand, I have the hope that uh, all creation will eventually cooperate. So a kind of a universalism that's possible, but not inevitable, because in my view, it's God's love that's the driving mot- motivator, and God's love is inherently uncontrolling. Right. Yeah, I, I'm totally with that view. I Like I said, I, have, I haven't actually gotten to the last chapter, uh, and I know we're coming up on an hour, so I don't know if we've... Um, Oh, We're running out of time on your end, uh, but yeah. So I, I really wanted to talk about that last chapter of what um, what that cooperation yeah. with God looks like, um, and what what does that look like? If, if God needs our cooperation to heal the world, to change lives, to see evil uh, come to an end, what does that look like day to day? And what what, do you, what does that look like to you in a more eschatological, long term yeah. sense? Well, let me let me begin by answering that question by saying that um, when I conceived of this chapter, I had in mind people who. Um, have been frustrated by efforts to try to solve the problem of evil. People who um, haven't come to any kind of theoretical resolution to that question of why a good and powerful God doesn't stop genuine evil, but they recognize that they should play a role in it, that they ought to be God's hands and feet in the world, we might say. And so they'll say something like, look, uh, I don't know why you know, I don't know how to answer the problem of evil. I just know, you know, we just need to get out and do something about it. We need to be activists. We need to make the world a better place, whatever language they use. And this comes not just in sort of lay kind of forms. A a very articulate person in this position is Stanley Hauerwas, who makes this claim that, look, it's all about practices. It's all about practices in community and in the world. And trying to solve the problem of evil is just stupid because, you know, that you can't do it. Well, I say in this chapter to begin that 
if you think God has the kind of power that God could prevent evils in the world single-handedly, God either caused them or could have prevented them, then your efforts to try to stop evil, your efforts to try to make the world a better place might actually be going against God's will. Because if God allowed it or caused these evils, God either must have had a purpose for them or it's somehow a part of some plan. And so, you know, take, uh, I don't know, take starving people in the Congo. If we think that uh, people are starving in the Congo and we're trying to send them food, uh, well, if they're starving, a God who has the kind of power to stop that starvation or famine unilaterally, but allowed it, it must be God's will then. And so then that creates all kinds of really, really strange situations far better to believe that God is acting at all places at all times, but can't control not only people, but other conditions of creation. And therefore, our deep intuition that we ought to be compassionate, that we ought to help those who suffer, that we ought to create practices in our communities and around the world that incline us toward the good, that fits with the view of a God who can't control what's going on. And so um, I started thinking about this last chapter in terms of the cooperation that we need to do in terms of overcoming this common objection to trying to solve the the problem of evil at all. Now, in terms of answering your question directly, our cooperation with God can take so many forms that I'm almost reluctant to begin listing all the different ways we can cooperate with God because there are just (laughs) so many Often, you know, these are fairly mundane kinds of things. I happen to think you and I are cooperating with God right now in doing this podcast because I think this podcast could be a helpful thing and it's a loving thing. And so we're joining with God to uh, usher in the kingdom of God, we might say, if we were using more classical Christian language. But sometimes uh, it's more dramatic and more sensational kinds of uh, cooperation in love in the world. Um, It comes in so many different forms in so many different ways. And I think that's the beautiful thing because we people are diverse, right? Our interests are diverse. What we care about is diverse. Uh, Our skills, our gifts are diverse. And it takes a diverse set of people to cooperate with God, to uh, do the kind of, to bring about the kingdom that God wants. So in terms of details, I think I'll pass on trying to list all of those and then kind of go to one other point before you have another question. And that is to say, my view of God's work to bring about the kingdom of God or make the world a better place, uh, usher in the victory of good over evil, is one that not only is happening right here and right now in this life, but also involves what happens after we die and into the future, and that God never gives up. God doesn't at some time say, okay, we've gone long enough with this love stuff. I'm going to come back, kick some royal butt, send some people to hell for eternity, and the rest of you good guys get to go to heaven. That's not the, that's not the view of God I'm, I'm right. proposing in this book. The view I'm <laughs> good, um, but also it's not a view of God that says, "Oh, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do. Ollie, Ollie, income free. You're all going to heaven for eternity." No, it's not that view either. It's a view that says what we do really does matter right now and in the future. Um, 
And I think that's the logic of love. Yeah, no, I, I'm so with that. You know, that's, um, I, I don't think, you know, as far as you talking about universalism and, and the end of all things, you know, like, um, uh, I think, you know, uh, P- Peter even talks about it. Peter talks about judgment coming first from the house of God. Like, you know, even the scriptures are not like, you know, um, it, I don't think it, it has to paint this picture of, you know, well, there's a few people that are going to go to heaven. Everyone else is going to go to hell for eternity, you know, one and done, come swinging a sword. It's all good. Right. Uh, and then it's, it's all over, you know, split the Eastern sky wide open. But at the same time, I, I do think, you know, that we have to be – so, like, I, I would consider myself yeah, a yeah. hopeful universalist. Um, and I would, under, I, I would understand that within controlling ways, right? And so I would understand that in the way that, you know, it's hard for me to believe that any particular person or part of creation can go on for eternity and always yeah, say that's no. That's my view too, I think. Um, and not in the coercive sense, but – I, I can't comprehend for yeah. saying no for yeah. eternity. Does that make sense? Like, cause I mean, I can't comprehend saying no in this life or, you know, in, in this brief vapor of a, uh, of a moment I have in the history of the cosmos. So I, it's hard for me to comprehend. Um, so I would say I'm hopeful. Yep. I'm very hopeful that all of creation will, will come to know the full depth um, and height of the love of God. Um, that said, I don't think, you know, I'm with you. Yep. I think what we do in this life matters. The, what we sow in this life matters, I think what you makes know, my- um, and I think there's hell. I think there's hell and yep. hell and heaven in this world. I think, you know, um, and unfortunately, like we talked about, some people don't seem to reap yep. all the hell they sow, uh, um, you know, that is from our perspectives. But I, I trust that in, at the end that God is loving uh, and that God is relentless, relentlessly pursuing not only me, but even the people that are not like me, yep. the people I don't like <laughs> and, and the people that have hurt me. Um, and that's helped me, especially in the last year. Um, dealing with, you know, hurt and pain and frustration with people is understanding that those people yep. are uh, just great. as loved by God as I am. That's a really Despite important uh, perspective to have, I think. I think, you know, I think ultimately the relentless love view that I propose in this chapter is a form of hopeful universalism. But the phrase hopeful universalism doesn't capture well the um the emphasis i place upon our participation our choices our our actions one could be a hopeful universalist and say well i just hope god decides to send everybody to heaven uh, and that's not what i'm uh, suggesting here i'm suggesting god wants to redeem all creation but we have a role to play in that redemption Right. You know, um, I was talking uh, with my friend Mike Petro uh, yesterday, actually, for his podcast that's launching sometime. Uh, It was kind of strange being on the other Uh end of the microphone uh, (laughs) for once. Uh, But, you know, we were talking about theosis and we were talking about this, you know, um, God pursuing creation and kind of along the similar lines we're talking right now. Um, You know, but what is that, you know, this static once and done future? You know, I think that's a lot of people's understanding. They're eschatologists. You know, everything's just going to be made you know static at some point exactly. and to me that's boring right i i believe uh and i i think uh, especially like in the cappadocian fathers and, and some of the some of the other mystics um um they have this idea of this continual transfiguration this continual cooperation within the love of god that is continually transforming and evolving um yep. in that love 
and so I, I definitely, I definitely think that I don't think, you know, that's just some God's going to wrap things up one day and roll yep. up his sleeves and kick back, you know, <laughs> and we're just going to be stuck in heaven singing, you know, uh, singing the I'm same totally songs for 10,000 years. Right. When we say enjoying God forever, well, this enjoying is a, uh, a moment by moment kind of thing. It's an ongoing, a dynamic kind of thing. You don't enjoy once. If it's in a, a state of enjoyment, you're having ongoing enjoyment, which means non-static kind of relationship. And that's the kind of view I think it makes the most sense when we talk about the afterlife. Yeah, I'm with you. Totally. So cool. I I'm, can't wait to finish reading. Uh, it's just been so hectic. I was like, oh, I cannot believe I haven't read this last chapter yet. Uh, and then, of course, our interview was coming up. So I can't wait um, to finish reading, of course. Um, and I, I really just can't wait to Good. give this to some people. Like I just I know I know some people I'm I'm going to put in their hands as soon as yeah, that, well, uh, that date comes and, and I can get get a physical be, copy of it. And um, thank you. Thank continue you. to it'll support be, your work uh, up on Amazon, I think, January 10th. So if uh, folks want to get copies, uh, that's January the way 10th. to go. Right. And so your copy on Amazon is coming out January 10th and an audio book uh, yeah, will be coming I out have, in a few months, uh, right? I've already recorded the audio book, so I'm going to try to have it up by the end of January. In fact, by the end of January, you should be able to get this book as a print from Amazon, the ebook from Amazon, the audio book from Amazon, a hardback from Ingram Spark, and even a Spanish version from Amazon by the end of the month. So... Yeah, it's a major, major wow. effort by the publisher and me to make these things happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Covering a lot of bases, you know, because I know plenty of people that uh, they don't have time necessarily to sit down and read like they would want yes. that audiobook, you know, version will be uh, great. And I think I've re- I've actually recommended your oh, Uncontrolling Love of God audio good. to people. I don't know how many times. So, uh, so I, which I think we had listed in the last podcast. So I am super stoked. Uh, Dr. Ward, for your book to come out and for it to be in people's hands and for you to uh, uh, get to hear uh, some new stories. Because, you know, the, you, this book and even your last book, they're, they're full of stories yeah. about people who have suffered um, and have struggled and, and things like that. And I think it's going to be so great. And, and I think you, you've experienced this already with your other book. Uh, but I think to um, probably to a much greater extent, you're going to be able to, with this book, um, Mm -hmm. be able to see that that cooperation with the love of God has paid off in ways um, that has made it all worth it. I'm sure it already is that way to you. I want want to help people. And uh, uh, these ideas, I think, can really be helpful. So I thank you for inviting me to have this conversation and uh, helping me get the word out about this book, God Can't. Yeah, I I, th- I think it's needed, and I'm thankful you wrote it, and I'm super stoked uh, that you agreed to come back on the show again. Uh, again, our you're you're our first time uh, person that's or you're the only person that's oh. been back on the show um, from previous episodes. So, which is so cool uh, for to have you on and be a part of that. And uh, I can't wait to be able to release this episode out. I know I've been getting emails for like six months uh, from people like, "Hey, where's why are there no more episodes? Why are you, why are, you, are you done with this thing?" And I'm like, "No, life has been wild." Please just stay tuned. Um, and so I'm glad to be able to hit off January 
um, and before before your book even comes out, so we can get some word out uh, about your book. Uh, so thank you so much for that, Doctor Ord. Again, it's it's always a pleasure talking to you, uh, and it's been too long, I think, but uh, I'm I'm glad I got to do it today. Thanks so much, Ryan. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right. And just as we're closing out, uh, Dr. Ward, could you just tell people where they could find you? Yeah. You know, uh, I have a personal website that's thomasjord.com. That's Ord with two O's. But there's also a a devoted website to this book at godcant.com. And on that uh, particular site, there's not only a bunch of endorsements and reviews that are listed, but uh, there's also, I'm putting together a massive bibliography of other books that uh, readers could find helpful. In fact, when this podcast is uh, posted, Ryan, let me know and I'll add a link to that site so that others can connect with you and hear this interview. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And uh, I'll be sure to link uh, your website and the God Can't website um, and your uh, some of your social media stuff in the show notes so people can connect with you if they haven't. Um, and so we want them to be able to get to you and uh, hear more of your stuff and get their hands on this book. So again, thank you so much. Uh, again, it's just been a great conversation and uh, I'm looking forward to the book coming out and uh, maybe having another conversation soon.